Welcome to Nashville to Memphis, a podcast hosted by Dr. Jason Lee McKinney, a recording artist, songwriter, and the rock star professor. N2M is a podcast where Jason and a guest or two literally talk on the phone while Jason is driving down I-40. The only subject criteria is that this podcast is all about the random crap Jason thinks about. So, all of you podcasting and audiophiles, just chill on the sound quality, you dig? Jason is a front-pocket theologian, back-pocket socio-philosopher, and a jockstrap surveyor of the music industry. You may not be able to make sense of it all, but that's okay. Neither can he. Thanks for listening to Nashville to Memphis. Don't forget to rate and write a review for the podcast on iTunes. You can find it under the title Nashville to Memphis. You can reach the podcast at www.facebook.com slash Nashville to Memphis. And check out Jason's music at www.jasonleemckinneyband.com as well as iTunes and Spotify under Jason Lee McKinney Band. All right, kids. Always remember the Lord loves a working man. Don't trust Whitey. See a doctor and get rid of it. This week on N2M, we break a breaker 1-9 in Cashville in the 615. I have a little chat with Rush Hicks. Rush has been an entertainment attorney for over 30 years and also serves as the chair of the music business department for Belmont University. Rush and I pontificate about the evolving music business student, the industry finding its equilibrium and disruptive technologies. So sit back, buckle up, adjust the rear view. The exits for McCrory Lane and Cuba Landing are just ahead on this week's episode of Nashville to Memphis. I, I did want to start, if we officially start, that it, I know that you graduated from Ole Miss. We talked about that. It's been a rough uh, week for y'all. <laughs> you know what? It's uh, oh. To say the least, and I got to tell you something funny. You 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 working in Memphis? I was I was in Oxford a week ago Saturday for a football camp. A friend of mine's son. I rode down there with him. We got our picture taken with you, Freeze, and uh, <laughs> he was smiling. Everybody was happy, and like Thursday, like Thursday, you know, the whole world changes. And uh, so I I don't know what to think. I, I you know I. I gave him the benefit of the doubt, but at this point, I don't know. Boy, I tell you, it just shows you can't put your faith in humans. That's for sure. That that is for sure. And he shocked he shocked a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think now I will say this as a general football fan, and this won't be the major part of our subject matter. But I'm a Notre Dame fighting Irish guy. I grew up in Indiana. Oh wow! So I will say that when 2013 Ole Miss went from like. Yeah. In the 40s and 50s of the yeah. recruiting class, like number yeah. one, I'm like, whoa, that's a jump. So I, that part of it, I wasn't shocked. That investigation, but wow. the other stuff, the personal stuff with you, yeah. I was pretty shocked in that. I didn't, I didn't Ever, expect that. People it. in Memphis, I mean, if they knew him, his background, and I, I guess that's you know the, the where power and money come in and can change somebody's personality. I guess I, yeah. I don't know. I'm still, I'm. Still amazed at that, but 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 the Rebels, oh, it's gonna be fine. They got they got a great uh, uh, support from 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 fans, and our budget is just huge. I mean, it competes with the other major schools, and and uh, and 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 as I've told everybody, middle middle uh, Mississippi and mid South area, great recruits. So you got all the the elements necessary. Uh, you just got to stay out of trouble, and hopefully, uh, we'll take our punishment and get things back in order again. Okay, yeah, that's the, I, the irony. Of the thing is, 
we're actually going to have a pretty good team this year. We got a lot of great players on campus and, uh, it could, it could be very interesting. It could be a very good year, even with all this turmoil, you know, so. That's true. I'm hoping for Notre Dame to either go 12 and 0 and come back to where they were or to go 0 and 12 so that we can get rid of Brian Kelly. Like, I'm at that point with the coach, you know. The, my, my, my Notre Dame story, I was in the Ole Miss band and, uh, uh, was it 1977 when we were the only blemish on, and that was when Montana was quarterbacking. Yeah. And that Ole Miss was your only loss. Jackson, Mississippi, one of the hottest days of September ever. And uh, I remember being in the band that I lined up and I looked over and there's a priest on the sideline. That was new to me. Um, but uh, but but Ole, a bit, Notre Dame ran out of gas in the fourth quarter and that was their only loss. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> right. I think it was '77. But anyway. Yeah, I, uh, Montana has some pretty good years. His pro yep. career didn't turn out too bad either. So that's true. That's true. You're right. All right. So more important stuff. So you got you you went to Ole Miss. You got your law degree. Did you 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 weren't born and raised in Nashville, were you? Uh, no, I'm I'm was born in South Mississippi. Grew up in Georgia, uh, and uh, and then went to a, a school in Mississippi. Moved to Nashville in 1983. Okay, and were you already you were already practicing law at that point, right? So you didn't. I had, like I had typical... pra- right. Well, yeah, I had practiced for a couple years uh, in a general in a general practice firm, and so. Got my hands in a little bit in domestic relations and wills and estates, and uh, represent a few uh, DUI defendants uh, and some real estate work, uh, and then uh, got into the music business uh, in early '84. Gotcha, gotcha. And how did that? How did did you slide into it? Was it a gold? I mean, did you go searching for it? I mean, how did it? How did that sort of transpire? You, you have to go back a few years because my undergraduate degree was music. I was a percussionist and then I went to law school. Uh, and I think the reason I did that looking back, you know, when I was much younger, uh, I had the ability as a musician. My mother was a music teacher. Um, I won some honors in the state of Georgia as a percussionist, got a scholarship to Ole Miss in music. Uh, but I had always been interested in politics and law, uh, growing up. Uh, I just enjoyed that and, and it gets history as well. And so by my senior year in college, uh, rather than pursuing a career in music, either as an instructor or as a musician, I thought about, you know, law is a little more stable. Uh, I think I want to practice law. And so went to law school, passed the bar, practiced for a little bit. But then I got this desire to get into the music business. But I didn't know what the music business meant. I, I listened to music growing up. I didn't know anything about commercial music other than Nashville, New York, and L.A. were the places to go. And, you know, uh, someone growing up from the, in the deep south, New York was too cold, L.A. was too far away, and Nashville seemed the logical place. And moved to Nashville, met a few people, met a few attorneys, and and uh, ultimately got introduced to um, a gentleman that, that uh, he and I started a, pro- a law practice together. He uh, had been the director of SAG-AFTRA, in Nashville, the Nashville office, and he had a law degree, and uh, and that's how we got started. Awesome, awesome. So, and when you started there, '83, you moved to Nashville. How has just some general, some of the law, like especially pertaining to copyright, change? Because with all the the digital stuff, and I feel like we're still as an industry trying to find our equilibrium. Whether it goes down to something as simple as 
you know, you had union scale for union musicians. And now what does it mean when you're sitting home at your underwear in front of your Mac and you're recording a bass part? Most people don't want to pay you, you know, union scale for that, that work because it's, it's such an odd thing. There's no cartage. There's no time away from home all the way to like, how do you handle streams versus, you know, the, the Pandora's box of YouTube, you know, YouTube and the covers and all that sort of stuff. How, how would have been the major changes that you've seen that, that you probably didn't, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself in 83, you would have never imagined. The, okay. Through the eighties into probably going into the late nineties, the music industry, as I experienced, it didn't change a lot. It still was about, you know, songwriters writing hit songs for radio, this least in country music and Christian to a certain extent, but right. Writing songs for the radio, finding artists, to record them, labels were signing artists, and and they were paying royalties. And artists would tour, artists would get endorsements, uh, songwriters would write songs, uh, and everything was good. And then, you know, uh, I can remember the this thing in the late '80s. Uh, I was I, one of my clients was a was a major recording studio here in Nashville, and they they asked me to get involved in the purchase of this device called a digital uh, track, tracking machine. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, what is this? What do you mean digital? Because I only heard the word analog. Um, and, and so I was told, you know, this is the, this is the new wave of the future, though. I really didn't understand what digital meant because, you know, we didn't even have the internet then. Um, and so fast forward for probably another 10 years, you're hearing about all these recordings. Everybody's turning, going over to digital. And I remember there was this device people kept talking about an MP3 player. Um, and I went to a seminar in New York. It was a bar, uh, American Bar Association seminar. So you got a bunch of lawyers in the room. And the person conducted the seminar said, okay, maybe it's 97, 98. So probably somewhere in there. Said, I want to show you this device. This is going to change the industry. It's an MP3 player. And, and, and he, he explained to us this is the way of the future and that this is such, um, uh, uh, well, the quality is not as good as a CD, um, you know, but digital technology was the way of the future. And, and, uh, and he said, I don't know that the MP3 player will replace the CD because it's not as good a quality. And, you know, the consumer demands, uh, quality. They, they want to be able to hear perfection in the recording. That's what CDs do for digital technology. And, uh, and then, of course, we know after the MP3, then we've had all these devices in the last 20 years that have kind of disproven his theory that quality was really important. I don't know is as important as we thought it was uh, because it wasn't as good as a CD player. Uh, um, but he kind of opened my eyes to what digital technology could do. And then, of course, once Napster came along, then everybody geared up, uh, especially the record labels and the RAA, to fight that whole thing because we didn't know, we didn't know what uh, peer-to-peer was. We didn't know how it'd be used. Um, and I think, so I think in the nineties is when technology changed everything, especially in the latter half of the nineties and the way we had viewed things, not only just from the business of creating music, but also contracts and royalty accounting and all those things that had been for decades had been very consistent suddenly changed and then we got into the new century and and i think you know you just mentioned uh, uh at least for the first 15 dozen or 15 years 
it was absolute chaos, and it impacted Nashville to a great extent, but seems to have kind of leveled off a little bit. And at least people think that we're back to seeing some growth again. Yeah, I think with, you know, Spotify actually turning a profit, you know, corporately for the first time, I think you're starting to see an equilibrium. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, to me, one of the major changes is the product unit. The product unit used to be based on an album or a CD, so it was based on 15 songs. And now the unit is fractions of that, because you went from the, the unit price basically being to a digital download, and now it's a stream. The unit price is just it's fractions upon fractions. So we have to readjust what we think of as a success because it's not a one-to-one. Someone who has 100,000 streams on Spotify, that's not the same, not just financially, but also brand impact and marketing impact as 100,000 downloads. So you have to sort of readjust your economics because the unit is not what it used to be. I mean, music industry was built on a unit of an entire album post you know, the 50s, I guess, really it regressed back to what it originally was when, when you had the Memphis Four and they were doing singles and 45s and all that when rock and roll first started. Exactly. But, it, sort of but, 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 but it did. But with the 45s, I mean, you had a physical product. You purchased it. Uh, the, everybody in the, knew in, in the system how you were paid. I was explaining to a group of students this morning just about we were talking about sync licenses and mechanical license and performance license. And how when a movie came out, he had a, he had a song in the soundtrack that then the singles were released from that. The soundtrack sold albums. There was there was an orderly system of how you would get paid, and you knew ahead of time. But today, uh, it's it's almost after the fact, and you're not sure how the strings are being accounted accounted. So you got a royalty issue, but you also have a success issue. When when are you successful in terms? Of streams. What if I what if I tune in uh, and listen to something for a relatively short period of time? Does that mean now I'm a fan of that artist, or is that just one of many many artists that I listen to that I may not know their names, but I might recognize a portion of the song? And then how are they accounted to? Those royalty statements come in, and it's based on so many streams, fractions of a penny. It's it's it, we still haven't. And you say equilibrium, but I don't know that we've gotten to a point where we clearly understand. What what is what a hit record? What is what is going to generate in royalty income? We're still trying to to work our way through a system that a little bit chaotic and is not clearly understood. And so that translates over for people like myself who have practiced law. You know, you want to deal with absolutes, and and we're anything but an absolute right now. And how people are compensated, and how do you determine if they're successful or not? Right, right. Thank you so much for listening to Nashville to Memphis. I hope you enjoy it. I truly value your time and appreciate your listenership. Please go on iTunes and give us a rating. Five stars helps. It goes a long way. Write a sentence or two. In addition to that, if you wouldn't mind, I love doing this podcast. It is definitely a passion play for me. But like everything else in life, it does cost a little bit of money. So if you would... Go to Spotify and follow the Jason Lee McKinney Band. Give us a stream or two and put us on your playlist. And then also go into iTunes and download a song or two. We have five albums out. And it truly goes a long way. Every download counts. Every single one. Share us with your friends. 
check it out, support the podcast, support the band, jasonleemckinneyband.com. Spread it around to all your friends, neighbors, and fans, yourself, and I truly appreciate listening to Nashville to Memphis. Back to the show. Digital Millennial Copyright Act. Things are moving so fast that that came about, and there was at least this assertion from people that that had sort of solved the issue legally. But that didn't even really see streams on the horizon. What are what are some of the legal ramifications that we're still sort of trying to play catch up with? Well, you're you're talking about an act that was passed more than 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> we have, we live under a copyright law from 1976, uh, and and Congress Congress is you know a couple of decades behind in their legislation dealing with technology. And even though there are hearings and efforts to revise the copyright law. Every time that comes up, they get pushed to the back burner, and so we're falling farther and farther behind. And it's really, it's almost, I, I equate it to almost the Wild West. We're trying to figure out among the parties, where do we go? And so that, that leaves it open to court interpretation and, and really just trying to eat everybody muscle their way in and see where they're supposed to be at the table. Well, you've got the digital community, you've got the record side, you've got the publishing side. Um, and nobody's quite sure. And then you've got the, you've got the CRB who's, you know, in the, in this whole process is trying to, to, to determine what the royalty rates are given an old copyright law mm-hmm. and, and technology is changing it dramatically. And so I think it's catch up. I think we're still behind and, and it may be one thing that may come out of this is maybe the private sector, maybe the industry regulates itself and works out how the system should work rather than having, you know, Congress update the copyright law to make decisions because every time they do that, they're already behind in technology. Right. Right. And it, it's, it would seem that it would at least presumably be able to be more efficient. Uh, the less, the less government were involved, uh, you know, being able to regulate themselves. And so here's one more sort of legal question. And, uh, I want I want to get your perspective on it because I've heard both sides of it and we know it's a big issue and and it's been you know enacted in in many other countries but the net neutrality thing uh, people are very much up in arms I wanted to get your perspective as a lawyer working in the music industry. Well, you can't you can't you can't uh, exclude that the notion of politics and all this because uh, in the last administration came in that was a priority was net neutrality and it created. A lot of concern within the industry, this notion, I guess the, the extreme would be that there is no copyright protection and anybody's able to put anything they want to without fear of an infringement suit up on the Internet. And it was a way people thought, at least the, the pro-Internet people, uh, that it was a way to uh, allow the Internet to grow. It was in its infancy still, and we wanted it to grow. And we might have a lot of information that people could access anywhere in the world on the Internet. But I've noticed in the new administration that's come in, they've taken a completely opposite viewpoint of that, which is really supporting what the the record industry and the publishing industry has said, that you've got to have regulations. You can't allow people just to copy uh, and infringe whatever they want to in the name of you know of public policy of 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 education there's got to be some restrictions and so what was this up in arms three four five years ago 
with net neutrality now is almost a 180-degree shift. And uh, and so I don't know that we're going to have as big an uproar about it now um, as as we did then. But there were a lot of there were a lot of rules that the FCC promulgated uh, about net neutrality, um, but Congress resisted it, and and now it looks like that they're taking a completely different view of that. Yes, yeah, interesting because if sort of transitioning into more student, more the academic things is that. Um, I've seen a shift almost in even amongst music business students and music students in, you know, the, the problem with net neutrality, one of the offsets of the problem, the, the issue of it is that um, the presumption, I, I would say the presumption that people will continue to create with the same skill level and creativity, whether there's money to be made or there's there's protection for their intellectual property as if even if there weren't so they whether there is or there isn't they're going to they're going to go with the same cliff of uh, proficiency and creativity but it really boils down to the simple economics of somebody is going to be better at something if they can make their living off of it because they can dedicate their lives to it where if something is relegated to a hobby the quality is going to drop so people talk often about music you know the quality dropping or some you know young people think it's raising but but if if, and, it, and put it in the most simple terms, and, and you can elaborate on this. For me, as a songwriter, too, I feel like if I have no chance to make any money off of it, I'm eventually not going to do that because I'm going to have family obligations. I'm going to have a, another job to where I'm not being creative, that it is going to affect the quality of the industry as a whole when people can't make a living off of it. It's a, it's, we live in capitalism. We live in, in society. So, But I feel like there's been a shift more towards the communal and I don't want to, I wouldn't use the word socialist. I think that word's tossed about too much, but more of the communal, we're doing art for art's sake and, you know, copyright protection is sort of an archaic thing anyway. Have you seen any shift in students? And, and even if you haven't, what are the ramifications of seeing that sort of shift from some people's mentality into that, uh, away from intellectual property rights? I think history proves that when you give incentives uh, to people, they produce more. Now, in the Constitution, it says, you know, it grants, it grants creators exclusive rights for a limited time. And I think the notion was, which I agree is still apparent today or still applicable today, that it's good for public policy, it's good for society that people create, but you got to give them incentive to create. Otherwise, you're exactly right. They may have the heart and desire to do it, but their pocketbook doesn't allow them to do it. We have, we, you know, we've got to pay rent. We've got to pay. Uh, we've got to pay for gas, for food. You got a family, you got to eat. Um, and, and if you can incentivize people and, and allow them to make a living at what they do, what they want to do and what they do best, um, it's going to benefit society. Now, yes, in the short run, you've got to pay for that, right? But over the long haul, society benefits because of the, the, uh, the, the, the amount of work that's created that probably wouldn't otherwise be creative we didn't incentivize I, the students that i teach uh they understand that this is a music business it's a commercial enterprise that people make a living by and and you we've got to be able to do that or i think society will will be harmed there won't be as much creative work out there if you don't pay people a decent living for what they you know what they bring to the table and you know this as well as i do i mean you're a writer uh, uh, but, but creative people are some of the most ingenious people there are out there, uh, in what they do. And, you know, I, 
for myself, I want to see them incentivized to create more, more things, more art that people can enjoy. And I think the only way to do that is to have a robust copyright law, not only in the U.S., but throughout the world. I think we'll all benefit from that in the long run. Right. It's, uh, that's, that's great. Great answer. Um, one more sort of jump back. You mentioned like across the world, the globalization of streaming, what sort of challenges has that brought about in copyright? Well, we do have something called the Berne Convention, which tries to harmonize uh, all the, the various uh, countries' laws. Uh, we have some organizations like WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, treaties that we have with these countries, of course, the Berne Convention. Um, but it's, it's difficult, it's difficult to make sure that, uh, that because of these different law countries' laws, that streaming, and that seems to be one of the biggest sources of revenue right now for artists and, and songwriters, that streaming is, you know, the system works. You got currency issues. You got international boundaries. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of roadblocks uh, uh, that that interfere with our creators in the U.S. getting paid and getting paid an appropriate amount. The, the corporate laws are different. I mean, Spotify is is a for-profit entity, uh, you know, based in Sweden. It mm-hmm. has ownership throughout the world. Those laws are different than than laws here in the United States. Uh, uh, tax laws are different. There's a lot of, of of roadblocks that are set up, and you know we didn't have that system before before because you bought product in the country, uh, the the country you know it accounted back whatever the the appropriate um, uh, label office or subsidiary uh, accounted properly back to the country of origin, who then accounted to the royalties and the songwriter. I mean to the artists and the songwriters, uh, and they made a profit. So, so it's much more difficult with streaming because the rules are different. We, we kind of create them as we go along. And I think there's going to be a period of time. It's really going to be more difficult for people to get paid and understand how this system works. And what I'm hoping is that if it is streaming, that at least it settles in for a while so we can get a, a grasp of it before some new technology comes in and throws it back into chaos again. Right. Right. I always say that by the time my kids are grown, that they're going to be downloading songs directly to your brain. Is my <laughs> Somehow that'll be the new technology. <laughs> Maybe so. Some new bubble gum and it'll just shows up in your head. But so um, you you've taught we both teach college and you, you've taught uh-huh. for a long time. How have you seen academia change and how have you seen the student change? And that's well, not insinuating positive or negative. Just yeah. how have they changed? Yeah, I think. Well, uh, I think let's go with the latter with students. I think that's been the biggest change. Uh, the 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 habits of students, um, the, the where they get their information from. Um, uh, I, I I think that students. I'm amazed that students don't really understand. If you go back more than ten fifteen years, and the way things worked, uh, a lot of students don't understand some of those concepts. It's totally foreign to them. Uh, so, and that's a relatively short period of time. You know, I, I, I tend to tell my students that in the consumer, the music buying uh, consumer, those generations are like every six, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. But when I was growing up, I, I thought a generation was like 30 to 40 years. Um, right. So, so things are 
are so students in the future, you know, five, six, seven, eight years from now will be an entirely different generation. So I think, and the way they, the way students communicate and they communicate with each other is, is, is really changed dramatically in the last five years. Um, now, as, as far as the way, uh, professors teach, as far as what's changed in our lives, uh, is not as drastic as that. Uh, copyright law is a great example of a very slow, moving um, uh, uh, act, you know, to protect uh, creators, and it's it's way behind, and I think it's because consumers, the young people today, are moving so quickly that the rest of the world, at least the older generations, and the way we've done things in the past, we can't catch up. So I think it's a problem probably uh, that all college campuses are dealing with, and and then I would say finally that the students do, in a lot of cases, understand the technology better than we do, mm. and and that's not necessarily a knock on professors, but but we don't live we don't live the technology like they do, and so what we try to do at our university mm. is is reach out more to the students and let them help us understand, you know, what the technology is, how it exists today and where they see it going and get them more involved in the technology aspect of it. And we bring in the past, uh, you know, to kind of make sure that everyone's aware of the way the industry has worked in the past. And hopefully the two, you know, together will we'll figure out a way uh, for everyone to be successful, everyone to make a living doing what they want to do. Right. Uh, and I, I, I tend to take the approach because things are moving so quickly that my aim is to teach students how to think, not what to think. There you go. A- amen. Absolutely. Not, not giving them a set of facts because that'll change and not be true five, six years from now. But if I teach them how to prompt, how to process, yeah. especially abstract things and, and strategically think, then whatever comes their way, they ought to be able to handle it. Even if it's completely different circumstantially, at the end of the day, business is business and humanity is humanity and society is society. And, and there are certain principles that you can – if you you can apply them, then you're going to know how to get through most situations. I, I teach my students. I remind them constantly. I'm teaching concepts, and the right. concepts that that will will stay will be firm even in the future. We'll figure out how to apply the you know, new technologies. But if you teach them the concepts, then they'll learn to think for themselves. They'll be fine. Right. Right. That's great, man. So what is what are your like? Okay, um, two more questions. Yeah. What are your like next? five, ten-year goals for you professionally or personally or what are, what are some things that you still have out in front of you that are like, I still want to do X, Y, and Z? i tell you what I am. Uh, okay, so I've been practicing law for a number of years, been teaching for, for a number of years as well, and um, I believe I want to cross over more into the creative side. I'm, I'm looking at some opportunities for in artist management. Uh, which is kind of a different way uh, of of thinking about the business. I've been on one, you know, strictly on the business side. I think artist management, you have to reach over to your creative side to help mm-hmm. uh, new artists. Uh, and I find myself doing that more and more and, and, and being offered opportunities to do that. So that's one thing. Um, second thing is just I love teaching, and it's, it's fascinating to see, uh, to be around students, and to see what interests they have, um, you know, what excites them, uh, their love for music, 
and and really to be able to figure out how they can take that love of music and make a living. And some of them will eventually make a very good living uh, doing doing the same thing I've done for years. Right, right. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, so one final question. I always say this. I do this on every podcast, and I say it's okay. the most important question. It is the most important question. So everyone has songs that they're just a little bit embarrassed that they like. Like you wouldn't probably admit it in the in the faculty meeting, or you're just the, but when the when the car doors are shut, or you're by yourself in the shower, you jam out to this song. So what is your guilty pleasure? What is one song you can name that people be shocked to know that you just you secretly love it? <laughs> commercial hit. Commercial yeah, commercial hit. hit. Not, commercial. Not necessarily classical music, but a commercial hit. Yeah, commercial hit. You know, I'm from the South, Sweet Home, Alabama. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what? People make fun of that song, but if as soon as it comes on anywhere and you're anywhere south of that Mason Dixon line, yes, sir, they will. It's it's like a it's like an it's like a southern anthem. It is Alabama, but it's a southern anthem. Yeah, you'll you'll get the woos, and it doesn't matter. I have a theory: you could play it in a bar or a church, you're still going to get woos when that song comes on. Both sides, both yeah. both, both groups. Yeah, so pretty pretty funny. Well, I, I appreciate you being on, man. It's it's great stuff. Now that we have solved why there is something rather than nothing, go check out belmont.eu.